please stay tuned to the end of this program or see the show notes for important information regarding today's speakers and the content of this podcast. Welcome to episode 12 of Allergy Talk, a roundup of the latest in the field of allergy and immunology by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For today's episode, we'll be reviewing three more articles from the January-February 2020 issue of Allergy Watch, a bi-monthly publication which provides research summaries to college members from the major journals of allergy and immunology. You can also earn continuing medical education credit by listening to this podcast. For information about CME credit or to read archived issues of Allergy Watch, head over to college.acaai.org slash publications slash Allergy Watch. Well, hello everyone. My name is Jerry Lee. I'm the co-host of Allergy Talk and an associate professor at Emory University. And as always, I'm joined by my co-hosts, starting with Dr. Kalangara. Hello, my name is uh, Dr. Kalangara, and I am an assistant professor of allergy and immunology at Emory University. And last but not least, Dr. Stan Feynman. Hi, yes, uh, thanks, and uh, I'm glad to be here. I'm an adjunct uh, associate professor at Emory as well, and I'm a past president of the American College of Allergy, Asthma and Immunology, and also editor-in-chief of Allergy Watch. So we have three more very interesting articles from the January February issue. So I think we should get right back into it. So Stan, why don't you tell us about all these biologics and what we should do about them? <laughs> well, this was an article from uh, the journal Allergy uh, that was reviewed by uh, John Oppenheimer in the uh, in Allergy Watch, and the, the article was entitled "The Clinical Benefit of Mepolizumab Replacing Omalizumab." in uncontrolled severe eosinophilic asthma. And it was published in the, uh, in the journal Allergy in, uh, in 2019 in the uh, November issue. It was called the OSMO study. It was called OSMO because it was the um, open label uh, omalizumab switch to mepolizumab study. So that's how they got the name OSMO. But it was an open label, single arm, um, multi-center trial of patients who had severe eosinophilic asthma, and they were not optimally controlled uh, on their omalizumab treatment. So they were all getting omalizumab. They all had uh, persistent, moderate persistent asthma, and they were uh, not controlled. And in fact, they also had uh, eosinophilia uh, uh, as well. And so then what they did is they um, switched the therapies and they measured uh, looking at asthma control, overall health status, exacerbation rate. Uh, they did look at lung function and eosinophil counts as well after 32 weeks. So it's not that long of a study, but it was 32 weeks of, um, of, uh, of treatment. So when you look at the, uh, let's look at the patients first. Uh, they started off with uh, over 200, but they were, they, they had a run-in phase and they eventually had 145 patients in their intent to treat population that were switched to the uh, um, uh, mepolizumab from the uh, omalizumab. Uh, and 95% uh, of them did re uh, finish the study. Uh, there was a little bit of a withdrawal rate uh, as well. And the interesting thing, if you look at the baseline characteristics of the study, uh, of the patients rather, uh, most of them were on the inhaled steroid plus a LABA. Um, and there were you know just a few who were also were on lung acting uh, I'm sorry, uh, leukotriene antagonists 
or um, uh, methicoline uh, antagonists. And their mean uh, pre-bronchodilator uh, predicted FEV1 was uh, 59%. So these, um, you know, basically they, they felt that they were uh, not controlled because they were having um, breakthrough symptoms. And their mean ACQ5, that's the asthma uh, control questionnaire, uh, five it was uh, 3.19. And, um, and so they basically felt that they were not controlled. And so they switched them over to uh, mepolizumab. The mean uh, duration of the omelizumab treatment was uh, 29 months. So most of them had been on for uh, really over two years uh, of these patients. And what they found was, uh, was really kind of interesting since the mean change and baseline ACQ5 was the main primary endpoint. But what they found was that really uh, within a short amount of time, uh, there was a significant change in the uh, ACQ5 uh, when the patients were changed to mepolizumab. Now, granted, a lot of these patients had eosinophilia, uh, you know, before they, uh, you know, while they were on the, um, uh, the omelizumab, uh, but they felt that... Um, uh, Half the study, about 45%, achieved an ACQ5 score of less than one at week 32. In addition, uh, they felt that there were improvements in lung function and overall health status with 79% of patients experience, experience a greater than four-point improvement in the uh, uh, quality of life score, overall quality of life score at 32 weeks. And so they felt there was a substantial reduction in the rate of clinically significant exacerbations uh, and exacerbations requiring either ER visits or hospitalizations when the patients were changed. Now, you know, as expected, you saw a fall in blood eosinophil counts. Uh, that was the first measurement at four weeks. You could see that, which we know uh, the mepolizumab, uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the IL-5 blockers are going to do that. Uh, but I thought it was an interesting uh, study, you know, because it did show this significant improvement overall based on those quality uh, of life measures, the overall asthma control uh, measures. So they were a little bit uh, subjective in terms of the measures. The other thing I think that you have to consider is that the study was funded by uh, Glaxo, who is the, uh, the, the manufacturer for mepolizumab. So, um, you know, I, and, and obviously it wasn't control. There wasn't, a, there wasn't a, uh, a, a real good control arm. Uh, the patients were sort of their own controls. It was uh, open labeled. Um, so uh, I think you have to look at the data, mm -hmm. but I think it's interesting to see that they felt that there was a significant uh, change in uh, the, uh, the uh, asthma quality of life score, or I'm sorry, asthma uh, control questionnaire, uh, you know, after, uh, even after just a few months of uh, treatment when they switched it to mepolizumab. So of course their, um, you know, their conclusion was that you should maybe consider changing to um, uh, mepolizumab or maybe one of the other IL-5s, um, you know, when a patient's not well controlled and they have eosinophilic asthma and they're on omelizumab. There's just so many ways to gauge if your biologic is working or not. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd love to know how you track your patients to know when this is not working anymore and how long. You know, I associate omeluzumab with mainly exacerbations, and I wasn't sure if, you know, ACQ5 and 
you know, certainly FEV1 are mm-hmm. things we should even be expecting to be something we're going after with that drug. And, and if it is exacerbations, I mean, how many exacerbations would it take before you'd say, oh, we didn't get that mm-hmm. expected 50% reduction? I don't know, Marin, if you had any thoughts about those two questions. No, I, I agree. It seems sort of an arbitrary endpoint in this study um, using the ACQ as opposed to the more traditional endpoints used in biologic trials, like a decrease in exacerbation frequency. Um, we, I mean, I agree with the basic premise that patients with one particular phenotype of asthma that's not responding to omalizumab may benefit from a switch, especially in the setting of eosinophilic asthma to an alternative biologic. Um, but I just feel like the the endpoints used in this case were a little, a little odd. Yeah, a little bit soft. I wanted, I forgot to mention what uh, John Oppenheimer said, because I think his comments were uh, important. He felt, and I'm quoting him, that the results of this study showed significant improvements in asthma control and exacerbation rate after the switch to the mepolizumab, although uh, limited, it was limited by the lack of a randomized control group. And he felt that it was still a very intriguing study, what he called this intriguing, because he says that likely there's no one biologic agent that's perfect for all severe TH2 high asthmatics. Yeah, and that's something that has been recognized um, previously. And in fact, even in our clinic on the adult side, we do not just like a double switch, but we've even done like triple switches to find out what's right for the patient, where we've switched from like omalizumab to an IL-5 blocker and then to dipilumab and in the hopes of finding something that works. And usually it does. You know, there's exacerbation and mm-hmm. there's this, these control questionnaires. I think exacerbations are pretty infrequent for the majority of patients. So what is your expectation right. on exacerbation frequency? Or you're saying so, I'm basing it mostly on symptoms. I'd love to, so, you know, that's where not, I'm struggling. So I think in our severe asthma patient, uh, in, in our severe asthma clinic, we see like the bulk of our patients have more severe exacerbations and that are more frequent. Um, but then we're, I'm also using it to describe our patients who are steroid dependent, for instance, um, the subset of patients who have ABPA. So, um, a lot of those patients require, we've rotated biologics yeah. in the hopes of finding something that helps. To get them off steroid. I yeah. see that makes yeah. total sense. That's sort of a different thing, but the, you know, a steroid dependent asthmatic or, you know, a very severe asthmatic, let's see, without APPPA, mm-hmm. uh, again, I, there are some that are just very difficult to control. In our experience, you know, we've had, we usually use the exacerbation rate as sort of a a red flag that they're not controlled and they may need to change. So if they're on, uh, you know, max uh, routine care, like a, 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 you know, a long-acting bronchodilator with an inhaled steroid, um, and they're also on a biologic such as usually, I mean, omalizumab, we've had obviously more experience because it's been around a lot longer, um, and they're still breaking through, you know, we do consider changing them now. And if they're eosinophilic, you know, we would choose an IL-5 you know, blocker, um, mm-hmm. in that situation. So, um, you know, and I don't have the, the numbers of patients at this study reports, but, you know, and my gut feeling is that they're in a number of the patients, they've had good responses. And I agree with Dr. Oppenheimer's comment that it sort of emphasizes the heterogeneity in type two asthma, because 
I've had patients, for instance, who do better on one particular anti-IL-5 than another. So just underscoring the fact that even within the even within sort of a similar class of agents, there is still variability in response. Are you talking about the... Oh, like say, ripalizumab versus benralizumab. Or- oh, well, I guess they're kind of different, right? Be- just because of the receptor versus cytokine. So um, I guess in my mind, I try to think of them as separate. Sort of. Yeah. Well, also, you're saying that reslizumab, which is the dose, that's the IV that has a, right. you're basically, it's dosed by weight. You know, the other ones are not dosed by weight. Maybe there's something to that. Yes, I agree. I do agree that um, certainly it is part of your expectation and the patient's expectation on are they hitting the expectations of their disease control and certainly we should change gears. What I always struggle is how much better should I expect them to get, especially when they quote me something like 50% reduction in exacerbations. And so for the patient, you know, they're talking about three events a year to one event a year. You know, it's going to take a while for you to know that they went from three events to one. Mm-hmm. Pull the trigger on changing them before you had a chance to know what their exacerbation rate is, if that makes sense. I think you're right. I mean, I think the bottom line is we still don't know exactly the best drug for the best, you know, for which patient. And sometimes we have to change. And I think that's the bottom line. I guess we can go to the next article. So, Marin, I think you wanted to talk a little about rhinitis, the quality of rhinitis. (laughs) Yes, post-nasal drip. So this is sort of an extension of the study I spoke about in the previous episode, which is post-nasal drip and chronic cough. And the authors tried to look into the pathophysiology of post-nasal drip, which is controversial because a lot of times there's no real direct relationship between the presence of nasal secretions and the mucosal irritation that's characteristic of post-nasal drip. And Previously, others have postulated that the sensation of postnasal drip could be associated with altered viscosity or just sensory dysfunction. And viscosity is an important determinant of whether the mucus is transportable, and also decreased mucociliary clearance may be responsible for PND or postnasal drip. Now, the viscosity of nasal secretions results from various different factors the degree of hydration, and the extent of cross-linkages in the mucus glycoproteins. And in fact, the term upper airway cough syndrome was coined to replace the irritation that's referred to as post-nasal drip, citing that it's actually unclear whether the mechanism of cough is truly post-nasal drainage or direct irritation or just an inflammation of cough receptors in the upper airway. And a subset of patients diagnosed with upper airway cough syndrome may have less to do with chronic laryngeal and pharyngeal irritation from nasal secretions and more related to a baseline cough hypersensitivity. And an increased sensitivity of upper airway for coughing from irritants is an established phenomenon called sensory hyperactivity or sensitization. In this study, the hypothesis was that an altered viscosity of secretions may actually be responsible for the sensation of postnasal drainage. Um, and they studied the viscosity as well as volume of nasal secretions, the mucociliary clearance time, and nasopharyngeal sensitivity, as well as the presence or absence of A to B in 15 patients with postnasal drip and in controls. 
Patients with postnasal drip had a sensation of fluid dripping down the back of their throat, as well as one or more of the following, foreign body sensation, cough, and throat clearing, and they were all requested to hold medications for 48 hours, following which the authors collected freshly produced anterior nasal secretions and examined nasal mucus viscosity using a rheometer, as well as mucociliary clearance time using the saccharin transit time. And this measures the time between saccharin deposition in the nostril and tasting it in the mouth or oropharynx. Um, They also measured nasopharyngeal sensitivity using a puff of air and performed allergy skin testing in all patients. What they found was significant differences in the viscosity of nasal secretions in subjects with postnasal drip versus controls, and in fact, this was more than 10 times higher in subjects with postnasal drip. In those uh, patients with postnasal drainage, 4 out of 15 had chronic sinusitis, and this may itself result in an increased viscosity of nasal secretions, but even after they were excluded, the median postnasal drainage viscosity was more than seven times higher than in controls. And overall, elevated viscosity was noted in more than 99% of patients with postnasal drainage. Of these 15 patients with postnasal drip, two reported spontaneous improvement, and when they were retested, follow up measurements of viscosity were similar to controls. On the other hand, the volume of nasal secretions was actually not increased in postnasal drip subjects, and the median volume of nasal secretions in patients with postnasal drainage was only 120 microliters as opposed to 340 microliters in healthy controls. And so this sort of reinforces the fact that the concept of postnasal drainage due to an increased volume of secretions moving from the nose to the pharynx seems more questionable. And counterintuitively, a paradoxical inability to produce secretions in patients with postnasal drip symptoms has been previously described, and it has been explained by sensory dysfunction, um, such as dysesthesia, as opposed to actual hypersecretion of mucus. And as we know, viscosity and mucociliary clearance tend to negatively correlate with each other, and the saccharine transit time in postnasal drip patients was also significantly prolonged, indicating delayed mucociliary clearance. And I thought this study was interesting because the current treatment recommendations of upper airway cough syndrome continue to be based on recommendations um, that it is a cytonasal disease process. What these authors are suggesting is that loss of hydration may be a major component for changes in mucus in the postnasal drip, and that the addition of liquefaction of viscous nasal secretions should be a component of postnasal drip treatment algorithms in order to not only improve postnasal drip, but also chronic cough symptoms and potentially even mucociliary clearance. So I, I remember I was going through the vendor area in one of the meetings and I ran into Jody Tversky in Johns Hopkins and I for some reason, we were talking about non-allergic rhinitis. I don't remember the story. But he said what he does for his patients is that he is very aggressive about sinus hydration in a lot of his non-allergic older patients. I mean, he gives them you know, nasogel and tells them to use it every two to three hours or something. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't sure at the time what 
the rationale was, but potentially, and, and again, maybe mm-hmm. I'm talking about the wrong thing there, but potentially hydration of the sinuses right. is just as important as something like medicine right. to treat it. I don't know what your thoughts are about that. No, no, I agree. And actually, it's something that I didn't even, that I never put two and two together. But we, we've known for a long time that it's not the actual presence as may, as much as patients may uh, endorse the dripping of fluid down the back of their throat, we know that, that this is not, often not the case, but rather it's due to a sensory disturbance. And now it's it's a pretty it was a pretty dramatic difference between patients and controls, just how significantly different the viscosity of nasal secretions were, just sort of highlighting that there may certainly be a role for hydration with like rinses or nasal gel. So that's the question I was going to ask. Um, do those really help the viscosity or do you need something like uh, guafenicin? Guafenicin, right. And so that's, so that's something that the, the author suggested was liquefaction. And I, I was assuming that they meant a mucolytic. Um, but then there was another proposal that I, I read in a different review talking about potential just sinus hydration, like Jerry was saying, to decrease post-nasal drip. So. Yeah, I, I, I don't use it enough, but mm-hmm. um, I do have patients who have definitely failed, you know, standard intranasal corticosteroid or intranasal antihistamine. And I actually go for sinus hydration. So maybe I'm, maybe I got the order reversed. Maybe I should start with that and then go to the other one. So I think if uh, again, a, you, you need to, I think, differentiate between passive hydration, which would be like the nasal sprays, which I think right. work. There's not a question mm-hmm. they work. I recommend them all the time. Uh, saline, the more saline in the nose, the better. Uh, mm-hmm. But the question is, uh, would a, liquefaction agents such as a guafenicin really be beneficial. You know, I haven't seen any good studies with uh, guafenicin. Uh, we do talk about hydration, you know, drinking your eight mm-hmm. glasses of water and things like that through mm-hmm. the day. Uh, that is probably something that's important. And they didn't really address that, I don't think, in this study. Did, did they really? No. Yeah. They didn't, they didn't mention it at all. But they definitely um, recommended the potential addition of a mucolytic to the treatment algorithm for post-nasal drip. That's really interesting. Maybe we need to Again, think I, about that. It's something simple. We should all be <laughs> mm-hmm. doing it, right? There's no, There's what's no the exactly. What's the side effect? Exactly. You know, and just and just think about yeah. all of those post-nasal drip patients that you see in your clinic every day. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. Great article. So um, I'm going to with a really interesting article that caught my attention. The title of the article is walnut antigens triggering autoantibody development in patients with pemphigus vulgaris through what they're calling a hit and run mechanism, suggesting that walnut could be the trigger of pemphigus. So let's take a step back and try to, you know, unpack that. So, you know, pemphigus vulgaris. So it's a blistering disorder. It's typically in middle-aged adults. It's autoimmunity to a component of desmosis desmosomes called desmoglein. There's desmoglein 1, desmoglein 3, and, you know, that breakdown of the cell-to-cell adhesion is going to lead to blistering. You'll get flaccid bulla. You'll have actually loss of skin. You'll get erosions, be painful. Sometimes you'll get mouth sores, potentially life-threatening. So this autoimmune disease we've struggled with, but Interestingly, when they looked at the type of antibody that causes 
desmoglein 1 and 3 autoantibodies, they were IgG4 uh, type, isotypes. So the question was, well, is a T helper 2 response partially responsible for this? And if so, potentially has related to allergens. And that was sort of the hypothesis. I thought it was a kind of an interesting hypothesis. So I, this study attempts to ask the question, do we know if the eventual inappropriate production of these autoantibodies were initially triggered back, 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 back due to some sort of inappropriate TH2 response to an allergen? So the way they did this is they used this technique to revert B cells that make anti-desmoglein antibodies to its original naive B cell form germ antibody state before it undergoes, you know, somatic hypermutation and class switching and selection in the lymph node. What it was it originally, uh, you know, what was the original uh, recognition of the first B cell uh, antibody? So they reverted these patients. They had uh, eight patients where they reverted their um, desmoglein uh, B cells, antibody-producing B cells, and then they ran those panel of 31 possible allergens, and that included insects, pollen, epithelia, mold, and food. And interestingly, they got a hit, and the hit was walnut jug R2 and a previously uncharacterized 85 kilodon component of walnut allergen. And so they, what they found was, is that when they looked at the Pemphicus vulgaris patients, they didn't actually have a lot of these walnut antibodies. So it wasn't really relevant to their current disease. But the idea is, that initial B cell activation and proliferation could have been potentially triggered by exposure to walnut. And then as it undergoes antibody selection, it's sort of through a mistake, inappropriately makes desmoglein 1 and 3 antibodies and then leads to the phenotype of pemphigus. So that mechanism seems really, really uh, incredible that that is potential that a food like walnut could trigger your body to properly make mm -hmm. autoantibodies. When we typically think of infection or something we don't know, could it be, I hate to say it, a food allergy because they're not eating the walnut to make the antibody on a continuous basis, but the snowball that started uh, way, way, way back, back, back could have been triggered by walnut. So I, I thought it was a very intriguing idea. Uh, certainly, they probably have to do some further investigations and more patients. But uh, it was something that the relationship of food allergy uh, and, and disease, uh, this was an angle I've never heard of before. Yeah, so, so one of my friends um, was actually diagnosed with pemphigus last year, pemphigus foliaceous and not vulgaris. But of course, her first question to me was whether food sensitization may be responsible or whether food elimination may help with her symptoms. And 
So one thing that I've, from reading this paper, what I got was that walnut proteins may be that initial anagenic trigger, but it's not necessarily what sustains this expansion of autoreactive B cells. So we don't really know whether dietary elimination would help in these patients. Is that correct? Yeah, I believe okay. that it gets the ball rolling, but right. I would assume that since you're continually exposed to that autoantigen, it's going to perpetuate the response independent right. of walnut. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the horse is out of the barn, essentially, right. at that point. And now the B cells are going to be continually mm-hmm. stimulated. I guess that would be my assumption. So one of the things I have a question, Jerry, about the study uh, was it said that they did testing for a variety of allergens, including pollens and uh, food allergens and things like that. Was there any uh, evidence of, uh, you know, allergenicity to uh, walnut protein early on, or maybe even some of the pollens that we worry about with oral allergy syndrome or anything like that? The largest signal was to walnut. I did see in this sort of heat map that they show, there does seem to be some selected signal for cockroach, mosquito, peanut, soy. But but I think it was so consistent with walnut. That's why I think they head, head for that. Now, again, this was not a comprehensive panel. Um, and, and, and certainly there are obviously may way, way, way more mm-hmm. allergens and antigens that they could have investigated. But um, that at least of what they tested, um, the pollen, like, for example, you're talking about oral allergy syndrome. There was only a few pollens, maybe like four pollens tested, oak, ragweed, Bermuda, and plantain. So certainly not as many as we typically investigate in our patients. Yeah, they missed birch. <laughs> ah, that's right. Good old birch, right? <laughs> Absolutely. But is that the allergen? Is I don't think there's any cross-reactivity between this particular allergen, the drug R2 with birch pollen. Is that right? Not that I know oh, of. No, I agree with you. Not it's that not, I'm aware of. No, no, no. I've said birch, but it's not. You know, I think you're right. Not with drug R2. So, yes, um, food triggering an autoimmune disease was definitely something that I thought was very, very interesting, though not sure what to do with the information, unfortunately. Exactly. I, I think no, it, I, yeah. I still remember like when my friend asked me last year, I told her, oh, this is not even in the realm of possibility that a food could be doing this and had to eat my word six months later. But. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, that's why we learn. We always yeah. learn. But I, I'm not going to tell people never eat walnut. I right, mean, right. Pemphigus is still a rare condition. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe in the future we'll be able to figure out how to, um, you know, identify patients at risk. Maybe it's an right. HLA type or, you know, something. Uh, bad luck. I hate to tell. Bad luck comes up a lot, but obviously <laughs> we shouldn't really accept bad luck. There is always a reason, I think, <laughs> deep down inside. Uh, we're just not smart enough to figure it out. Well, um, I think that's the articles for today. Thanks for spending the time of the day with us. Again, if you like what you're hearing, please send us feedback. That email is allergytalkoneword at acaai.org. Definitely send us your comments. And if you have some time, send us a rating on iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. We receive wonderful feedback. And don't forget... We are offering continuing medical education for listening to this podcast. Please go to our website, college.acaai.org slash publications slash allergy watch. Everyone 
Have a wonderful day. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you next time. The ACAAI is presenting this podcast for educational purposes only. It is not medical advice or intended to replace the judgment of a licensed physician. The college is not responsible for any claims related to procedures, professionals, products, or methods discussed in the podcast, and it does not approve or endorse any products, professionals, services, or methods that might be referenced. Today's speakers have the following disclosures. Drs. Lee and Dr. Kangara have nothing to disclose, and Dr. Feynman has been a speaker for AZBI and Shire and has done research for AMU, DBV, Shire, and Regeneron.